the word should points to our shame. Mm, okay. Because in order to should have done something or should do something, it means we have a judgment. It means we have an opinion around what we ought to be doing. And if we should do it, it means we are judging that we're not doing it and we have shame around not doing it. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Remind podcast. My name's David and I'm joined with the wonderful, the lip glossy, the amazing haired <laughs> Dr. Ashley Moreland. And today we're going, we're going to be talking about uh, parenting, being parents, being parented, all of that. How are you going, Ash? Yeah, I'm awesome. I love this. I love this. This has been a massive journey for me. Oh my goodness. We're talking about how our kids trigger us. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. And and how we as kids would have triggered our parents, which then would yeah. have created the triggers within us. So then the, the kids come like generational. Mm. Intergenerational trauma discussion today. It's going to be massive. It is brilliant. So, I mean, both of us are parents. Um, I think anybody watching this would have been parented in in some way, shape, or form. Um, so we can really talk about it from the, the the two sides. Now, are you wanting to more focus on being the parent in this episode, or would you like to focus on the other side? The focus is on as parents, mm-hmm. but you can't separate them because. True. The way that we are as parents and also the things that trigger us about our kids is really, really, really informed by the way our parents were with us and the parts of us that triggered them. So we can't really separate it. Mm. But I really, um, this was an episode request from one of our listeners and it was really talking about from the perspective of the parent. How do I, as a mum, how do I, as a dad, navigate these situations when I'm so triggered by my kids, when the sound of their crying triggers me, when them saying no triggers me, when them not eating the dinner that I've prepared for them triggers me? How do I navigate coping with them to be a better parent when I'm so triggered by the things that they're saying Mm. or doing? It reminds me of something that I've gone through recently with my youngest boy, William. So he's just turned eight and, um, you know, like any parent, you've got to tell kids what to do. Have a shower, do this, put down the technology, come and have dinner. I mean, he's a, he's a good kid, but you know, if he just does whatever he wants, he, he needs some guidance. But he, he does this thing and he goes, do I have to? Now, it's not in a whingy voice. It's just, do I have to? He's questioning it. And up until recently, I used to have to then justify what I was saying to him and I'd get to a point where I'd feel he's whinging. And the reason why he was whinging or I thought he was whinging was because I used to use it as a kid to my parents when they say, do you have to do something? I can remember it clearly. I would always bring out the, oh, do I have to like that really full sort of whinging. Mm. William's not doing that, but when he says it, that's what I'm hearing. And so I used to sort of just, I'd get triggered, but then after a while I'd sort of realize, okay, I still feel he's whinging, but I'm not triggered as much. And then I've got to the realization now, he's simply asking the question, do I have to? Because then when I respond and say, yes, he goes, okay. But I'd never got to that point because it was, could you please do something? He responds, do I have to? And then when I'm triggered, it's like, why are you arguing with me? Mm. Why are you whinging? He's like, but I'm not. Yes, you are. Well, in my mind, you absolutely are. So don't, don't question that. But over time, I'm like, okay. And then we got to a point of, yes, mate. You have to. Yeah, okay. isn't that massive? So the energy of your response and the flow and effect to him completely changed. And so what's happening there is 
P.S. Pointing to a episode that we did previously on what did you hear that I didn't say? Because this mm. is exactly um, aligned to that episode where the things that we are hearing are overlaid by our past experiences, by our interpretations, by the meanings that we're assigning to things. And so you assign a meaning to the words, do I have to, that wasn't real based on the experience that you had of those words when you were a child and how that was received. Because mm. how did your parents receive you going, oh, do I have to? Why are you arguing? Why are you whinging? <laughs> All of that. But exactly. I, could, I could swear, I could absolutely swear that's how he was saying it. And then when I've caught myself, he was simply just saying, do I have to? And if I, before, it'd be sort of like, why is he questioning everything? Why is yeah. he, you know, why is he whinging at everything? Well, he's not whinging at everything. He's just sort of saying, do I have to? Yeah. Um, but now... When I say sort of yes, he just goes and does it. Okay. He's not all the time. He's not a perfect eight-year-old. Sometimes he will whinge and I'll be like, okay, now you're whinging. You are going to have a bath or a shower. You just got to pick yeah. which one. Either way, you're getting wet. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's going to happen. Right? Yeah. Um, but then before, it would be just always about they're constantly arguing at me. They're constantly pushing back. But it was really what I was putting on top mm -hmm. of all of that so it was yeah <laughs> and then to have that as a as a dad to sort of go oh crap you know what i was actually um overreacting and then you get that little guilt bit of how many times did i do it to him and when i when he said that do i have to then i respond of stop whinging and he says but i'm not and I go, yes, you are. Then you start to go, oh crap. Um, and so there's a yeah, there's some some guilt in that as as well. But it was just phenomenal to see it. And I'm sure these things still happen. I'm just not aware of it just yet. So yeah. kudos to William and Darcy for having patience with their dad. Isn't it beautiful? I think. Um I w hadn't started my healing journey when I became a mum. I think I've shared previously in episodes. I got married when I was 22, one day shy of nine months later, our first child was born. And the funny thing was I moved out of home when I was 16, moved to a whole other state by myself, was completely self-sufficient, so independent. And I thought I was so grown up. I had already, mm. I was doing my PhD. I'd already been through four years of an undergraduate. I'd been through honours. I was doing my PhD at the time, I, we had built a house, like I was playing grown-ups and I really was an mm. adult. And then I had a child and he came into the world and I learned very quickly <laughs> that I was not the grown-up that I hoped I would be. Um, but also then with his health challenges and with, with other things, I think I've shared that elsewhere as well, I realized really quickly that I wasn't the mum that he needed me to be. And I had a lot of guilt and a lot of shame come up around the ways that I would react to him. Like if he cried, oh, it was like piercing for me. It was mm. awful for me. And so I would react to that and not in a healthy way. Um, there were so many things that happened in my early parenting life that again, at the time, I didn't think anything of it. But as, as my consciousness rose and as my awareness grew and I could play the role of the observer of me as parent, I realized, oh man, that's not the parent that I wanna be. Mm. And so that's where sometimes the guilt can come in, um, but also shame around like judgment, judgment of self and judgment of others, right? Um, that can be really tricky to navigate. And the thing that I used to really struggle, this is confronting for me to talk about. Mm. I used to really struggle with the connection with my daughter. And part that's very multifaceted. Part of that mm. was I actually had four miscarriages and I, my daughter was my last pregnancy 
And I didn't really tell anyone I was pregnant till I was like 20 weeks or something, 22 weeks, when I literally had the morph scan on the very last day that I could. Mm. And I had even put that off because I didn't believe I was going to get a baby at the end. I was protecting myself from the hurt of miscarrying again by completely dissociating and disconnecting from the experience of pregnancy. Even though I very much wanted the baby, I couldn't connect to her. I, I didn't feel connected to her. I didn't allow my, my walls to come down to even entertain the possibility that I could feel love for her because it hurt too much mm. to lose it. And so that was the first, probably the barrier to feeling a connection with my daughter. And then she was born and I did feel connected to her, but I always kind of looked at her and thought, I could never love you the way I love Elijah. And that's like, I'm being very vulnerable here right now Mm. because it's a pretty full on thing to talk about, pretty full on thing to admit because she was like, she was such an amazing baby. She was a beautiful baby. And born into a world where she was so worthy of love. And yet, because of my pain, I couldn't love her the way she, she was worthy of it. And I had oh, yeah. massive shame. Like, I, I couldn't, at the time, I didn't really tell anyone about it. I kept that to myself and I felt a lot of shame and a lot of guilt around what I was feeling as a mum. Anyway, over a period of years what I realized about her. So I kind of needed to learn how to heal. I needed to learn how to heal so that I could observe what was coming up so that then I could actually move through it. And over years, I realized that another threat to our connection is that she is so much like me. And not only is she so much like me in attitude and her energy that she brings and like she's so much like, if you put She's so much like me, even physically. If you put a photo of me at the same age next to a photo of her, and I have done this, I've shared this on social media before. If you put a photo of us at the same age together, you cannot tell who is who. She is that much like me. And now I look at it and go, I really love who I am. And I'm really grateful that I have this little girl who's just like me. And like that, that excites me. But it wasn't always like that. Mm. Oh, mate, she could trigger me in ways that no one else could. (laughs) That's incredible. She could just... um, The things that I was triggered by in her were the parts in me that were rejected and unloved and suppressed and repressed when I was a child. And so Mm. if they were the parts of me that I had to shove to the side because the people around me didn't like them, that I had to shove to the side because that upset my parents. Because I, you know, the parts of me that I had to disconnect from, that I had to completely shut out from because I needed to in order to survive and keep the people around me happy, maintain connections socially and in my family unit. And she's got those parts. She's holding a mirror up to me She's holding a mirror up to me, showing me the parts that I couldn't love in myself because it wasn't safe to, that I had to reject in myself. And in order to love her fully, I had to first learn to love those parts of me. Mm. Otherwise, this is how intergenerational trauma works. If I choose to protect my wounding and I choose to protect those suppressed parts of me, rather than do the work to actually learn how to be safely integrated as a whole being again, then I'm going to make sure she suppresses the parts in her that bring up my pain. I'm gonna make sure she changes her behavior so that she doesn't trigger me. And I'm gonna do that through discipline and control. But it's all to protect me. And so by doing that, what am I doing? I'm making her cut off from parts of her so that she's a suppressed version of herself so that she grows into. And that's a whole other layer of parenting guilt and shame when you realize the impact you've had on your kids because they've needed to suppress themselves in order to make you happy. That's a whole different story. But yeah, wow, what a journey. (laughs) And it's so, 
want to say multifaceted, but it just it doesn't feel right. But it's just so deep and, and detailed because being a dad, I've seen it from, you know, having kids from that perspective of being the dad, not being the mum, you know, the one that carries the children, the one that gives birth to the children. Essentially, even from a, when you talk evolutionary standpoint, the primary caregiver. Um, and so, you know, when you sort of think about what was happening with yourself and your daughter, like one thing sort of came to mind as well. Yes, she was coming out and there was this sort of disconnect even just through the pregnancy. But I've also heard as well, there's, there's also, you know, the hormone changes, or I'm not entirely sure exactly what it is, but they used to affectionately call it the baby blues, that when the, the mum has the, the baby, the hormones shift, there's some sort of, you know, depression or just sort of a, a lack that sort of comes in. They don't want to connect with the child. It's, you know, I'm really talking like a fish out of water here. Um, but what I'm trying to portray is there's so many things happening at the one time. Mm when you go from the first child to the second child you know they all have their different challenges having your first child is amazing and tremendous and terrifying all at the same time because now you've gone from and being in a situation where the mum and dad are together that now there's this third person that requires all the attention what then happens to those two people because bills don't stop needing to be paid. The house doesn't stop needing to be cleaned. Food still needs to be had. You still need to get your sleep. All of that's completely disrupted because of this little person. Yeah. And there's a whole lot of great stuff that sort of happens. But then there's this, well, when I'm walking into parenthood, sometimes you sort of think, well, I'm not going to be that parent that lets a kid have screen time or mm-hmm. I'm not going to do this and... I could never live in a dirty house or I'm never going to snap at my partner. <laughs> never let my kids eat lollies. <coughs> oh, no, no, no. Never no, going to no. feed my kids uh, junk food or, nope, or takeaway. Never going to touch the drive through um, And all of these things come in and they just sort of collide <laughs> in this huge sort of just bang. And then you add on top of it, like what you're going through, then the hormonal changes of the body, then the situational changes with the environment. And I remember when um, the kid's mother and I had the kids, it was just difficult just to agree on stuff because you're, you're lacking sleep. There's just a whole lot of stuff changing. Full-blown so survival. It is. And <laughs> Hunger Games. <laughs> And it's, and it's like there's a at least, you know, there should be like a manual, but there's not a bit like most things in life. And so when you pull all that together and then you put this judgment of what you should be doing on top of mm. all of that, it's almost completely unattainable Yeah. because you don't know what you're getting into. It's beautiful and wonderful. And don't get me started on my camera roll and my phone of all the amazing memories that I've got of having kids but you're never going to be perfect mm. like it's it's simply unattainable like that you are going to cause issues they are going to show to you the things that you need to work at yeah. and not just when they're born not just when they're six <laughs> not just when they're eight it's going to keep on going probably till mm. the day you die <laughs> yeah yeah the perfect, the perfect team. It's really beautiful, isn't it? Mm. When you were speaking then, I wanted to come back to the word should because this episode is all about parenting guilt and shame. Mm. And you might sit there and go, oh, I don't know, I don't think I feel any shame. I don't have any shame. Shame and guilt are tricky ones. We're more, we're more attuned to the sensation of guilt or the awareness of guilt. But shame, the word should points to our shame. Mm, okay. Because in order to should have done something or should do something, it means we have a judgment. It means we have an opinion around what we ought to be doing. And if we should do it, it means we are judging that we're not doing it and we have shame around not doing it. Because if I, mm. let's say I should, oh, I'm so tired. I know I should 
make my kids dinner tonight, but I'm just gonna give them toast. Mm. I'm just gonna let them eat cereal. That's a shame response. Because without the should, it would be, I'm really tired and I've got energy for cereal tonight. Mm. We're gonna have a cereal dinner night. That's the same situation minus the shame. Gotcha. It's just you either are or you're not, not you should or shouldn't. So I, I use this should and shame thing because it's so powerful in being able to go, where are you shaming yourself in your life? Where are you shaming your parenting? I shouldn't let my kids sleep on a bunk. I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do that. I should do this. I should do that. Make a decision. Go through, write your list of shoulds and shouldn'ts. Catch yourself saying should or shouldn't. Write your list of shoulds or shouldn'ts and then make a decision about them. If it's, I shouldn't let my kids sleep on the bunk, make a decision. Am I okay with the risk of my kids sleeping on the bunk? In which case, I am letting my kids sleep on the bunk. Even though there's risk, I'm making the decision but taking the shame away from it. If facing that decision, you go, oh, actually, that's really dangerous, then take action. Just make a decision and take the action because that takes the shame out of it. The should and shouldn't and inaction keeps us in our position of shame because we're not taking action on something that if we just made a decision about it, we would take an action on it. And so that's a little bit of a sidetrack. I wasn't going to go into that in this episode. No, but, but as- I, I, I do like it because it, it really brings up this should or shouldn't is based on what? It's based, based on a judgment. It's based on a judgment. It's based yeah. on an expectation. Is that expectation your own or is that somewhere or is that expectation coming from somewhere else? So yeah. f- for argument's sake, I could give you what I perceive to be the perfect dad. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I'll give you um, a fast forward. The perfect dad basically in my mind could not exist. Yeah. Um, but it would be always providing for the kids materially, so food, safety, emotion, just everything, pro- providing that, always making sure, and again, I'm talking about it from being a, a single dad, that the house is never dirty. Their rooms are always clean. They don't necessarily go without. I'm all, you know, I drop them off at school. I pick them up. That is always the way. I'm cooking dinner. The lunchbox is full. There's a full pantry. And they just never go without. Now, how practical is that? Turn the always into a drinking game. Everyone, pause. <laughs> you want this to be a fun game on a Saturday night? Pause right here. Take a timestamp. Rewind and get some shots ready. Every time David said the word always in that description, take a shot. And then when you return from your unconsciousness, (laughs) join us again. (laughs) Always is another distortion of how we overlay shame. It's not Mm. possible or not sustainable to always do something. Oh, their, their room is always clean. Which means that if it's not clean, then you're not meeting your expectation. If you're not meeting your expectation, you're failing. And if you're failing, the shame. Mm-hmm. So uh, take away the expectation of always. Absolutely. Always and should. Get rid of them from your vocab. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's like, but where did this all come from? Like when I think about just my own, what I perceive to be the perfect parent, it's like a unicorn. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but where did it come from? Well, yeah. and then what's the cost of the perfect parent? Oh, well, big. the cost of the perfect parent is, I don't care how well you do all of these things, there's simply not enough time in the day. And if there was, you are sacrificing yourself and there's also a sacrifice to the kids. For example, mm-hmm. if I'm cleaning their room every day, when are they going to learn to clean their room? Mm-hmm. Um, and so... It's just about sort of going, what is it that's most important to you and what do you feel is most important to them? So for me, I've made the, the, the decision of focusing being available as my biggest priority for the kids. 
Yeah. Taking them to school, picking them up, being there, having not just being physically there, but having mental space to be able to show up the best I can. Does it always happen? Hell no. Right? Um, yeah. So that's for the people playing the drinking game still. Um, and I still have times where I just simply need to shut off. And um, and I'll do that, but I'll let them know, hey, guys, I'm feeling tired. I've got a bit going on. I'm just going to go in my room for a moment. I'll come back out when I make dinner. Or my favorite, it's not toast or cereal, it's Uber Eats, non-sponsored show. But... Um, so I will I will do those things, but you just you just can't be everything. But you just got to prioritize what's most important. Now, if I was to put what's most important for someone else to prove that I'm I'm a good dad, mm. which I had to go through that part. Yeah, when you when you do go through a separation, society does look look at you and view who you are as a ex partner and as a as a father. And so if I had to prioritize all the things that other people thought were a priority, it'd be about what's in the fridge, what's in, you know, how clean the house is. Now, whether these people thought that or not, this was my projection of that. Yeah. But to me, it had to be what's really important to me is being available, giving them security, and just really letting them know if they ask me a question, I'll always answer it. Yeah. It, and I love that because it points to um, how do we get these ideas of what it means to be a good parent? How do we get these ideas of what a good mum is? And it's something that I actually go through with all of my clients, not all of my clients, many of my clients, um, is when they're feeling like they're failing in a lot of things and there is a lot of guilt and shame, I'll ask them to write a list of what a good mum looks like. Because that's the list that they're holding themselves accountable to that is the root of their their, tra- their shame and trauma. Because oftentimes on the list is things like a good mum cooks healthy food for their kids. A good mum keeps the house clean. A good mum is available to drop them off and pick them up every single day. A good mum doesn't shout. A good mum blah, 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 blah. Um, a good mum. It's almost, almost got the look like the 1950s picture perfect mum. Yeah, but that's that's basically carried on. How do we develop those beliefs? How do we develop that checkbox of expectations? Mm. It's indoctrinated into us. It's indoctrinated into us in movies, in TV shows, in pop culture. It's indoctrinated into us even in our own society and culture and homes and even workplaces. It's it's indoctrinated into us in all Mm. of those things, right? In marketing and media. The thing is, when... I asked them to imagine you are a five-year-old child. What would the best mum have looked like? And that's when they'll say things like, oh, she would have been available for me. She would have played with me. She would have talked to me. She would have been there for me. She would have Mm. hugged me. She would have none of the things that we are holding ourselves accountable for. The, The kid doesn't have any bias around or judgment around whether or not the house is clean. They just want to play with you. They mm. don't have any bias or judgment around what you're doing, how much money you're earning, the brand of your clothes. They don't have judgment around that. They don't have the capacity to know that those things are valuable because to a child, the only thing that is valuable is your time, effort and attention. Mm. They want your affection. And so when we're holding ourselves to this impossible standard of to be a good mum, I need to. I need to pick them up from school every day and I need to have their clothes clean every single day and I need to make sure the kitchen's clean and I need to have dinner on the table by six o'clock, not seven. Seven would make me a bad mum because then my kids are going to go to bed after eight and if my kids go to bed after eight, then Sally down the road is going to think I'm a bad mum because I was irresponsible and let my kids stay up too late. Like Mm. just all the stuff. This is, we don't necessarily have conscious awareness of it. Some of it we do, but some of it is just playing at such a deep unconscious level. And it's impossible. How can we, we cannot sustain that standard, which is why so many people just feel defeated. So many people just feel that soul level exhaustion of going, I feel like I'm failing at everything. Yeah, because you're in a race that isn't 
made for us. No one can win the race. Mm. And it's interesting because, as we've said in previous episodes, it's all about modelling and what has been modelled from our parents. Yeah. And if you go back to, say, my parents, <clears throat> they they went, you know, they grew up with their parents. And so it wasn't too long ago, too many generations ago, you could actually get away with a single income income mm. household. And so you go back to the 50s and then, yeah, absolutely. But time's moved on. Yeah. And so these things are being, you know, our parents were raised by their parents. But while they had a single income household and all of that, they were still living with parents that had been through severe trauma. Hello, mm-hmm. World, World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, all of these kind of things. These are the, the larger wars. Um, and so now we're in this situation where you take these kind of views or these ideals of what the perfect parent is and place it into today. Like very rare to have a single income household, almost non-existent. Mm. And so you then place that on top of all the other duties that you've got. And I don't, I don't know what the stats are, but anecdotally, I look around and there's a lot of people separating. Yeah. And I'm seeing a lot of single mums, a lot of single dads. And so the pressure to be that, in your own mind, the perfect parent is becoming more and more and more and more and more distant. Mm. And almost in some cases, and I won't harp on it too much, but weaponized. Yeah. Especially when it comes to separation. And so at the core of all of this, when you've got your own beliefs or these ideals that have been forced on you, plus the weaponization of what it is to be a perfect parent, being very understand, or at least wanting to understand where you want to focus as a parent is so vitally important. Because mm-hmm. otherwise you'll end up ripping yourself to shreds. Yeah, absolutely. And I think not only that, it's not just parenting. If all we had on our plate was parenting, we'd maybe come closer to meeting some of those expectations. Mm. But then there's this concept like when you have to be the perfect mum, the perfect wife, the perfect friend, the perfect daughter, when you go, oh, my friend over here is going through a really hard time and I know I should be there for them, but I just don't have capacity. We're shaming ourselves again Mm. because we've got all this stuff going on. And like you said, um, the single income families, I remember going through in my earlier life, um, parenting life, I remember going, I feel like I'm failing why is motherhood so hard for me and why do I get to the end of the day and go, I, what am I doing wrong? Like my mum worked when I was a kid, but I was an adult when I realised that my mum only worked part-time. I remembered that my mum went to work, mm. but I remembered that my mum had dinner on the table by six o'clock every single night, that my mum would pick me up from school, that my mum would do this and do that and she was available for this and she was available for that and she would be here and do that and go there. And I'm looking at my life. I was an academic at the time, working sometimes 50-hour weeks, 60-hour weeks, Mm. going, I work, I'm a working mum. If my mum could do all that, where am I going so wrong? How come I find it so hard just to get my kids' dinner on the table? How come I find it so hard to be available for that or to go there and do that? And I remember being quite exasperated one day and I I rang my mum and I was talking to her about it and she goes, Ash, I only worked part-time your whole childhood. And Mm. it was like this penny drop moment of going, I've been holding myself to this standard that where my mum was the standard thinking that that's what motherhood was meant to look like. But yet with these responsibilities and the load that I had, I couldn't meet that. There's only 24 hours in the day Mm. and I couldn't meet that. But that's because my mum was working like, I don't know how many hours part time, let's say 20 hours part time every week. And I was working 40, 50, 60 hours in a week and still trying to hold myself to the same 
standard of, of availability and doing all these things. Now, I don't work 40, 50, 60 hours a week anymore. Mm. Um, and also, I'm much more comfortable with the concept of help. I'm much more comfortable with the concept of if we have the financial resources to um, recruit help, that I'm, I'll pay for it. I pay someone to cook for us once a fortnight. Now, that doesn't completely um, wipe out my necessity to cook, but it sure does lighten the load. Mm. It lightens the load just for those nights where we've got um, speech therapy. We go a whole day and then I pick the kids up from school and then we race to another suburb 40 minutes away and we do speech therapy and then we've got to race home and then it's after six o'clock and we still haven't even started dinner. And Like mm. that's the thing that just psh, takes the pressure off. It's just having those meals in the freezer, knowing that there's food there. That just makes such a difference in our world. Now, if you're listening to, to this going, oh, well, it just might, must be nice to pay someone to cook for you. Well, that comes at a sacrifice. Absolutely, that comes at a sacrifice. But also, it's about loving myself well, even before I had the resources to pay for someone to do that once a fortnight, I would invest time into meal prep because investing that time into the meal prep meant that I could cope better during the week. Mm. It meant that and I could get home on those late nights and pull something out of the fridge, heat it up and dinner's ready in three minutes. And look, and it could be as, you know, you know, and I, this is what I do. It's, I'm not down on myself when it comes to frozen meals. Mm. So if I don't have capacity, then yeah, frozen meals and it's one of those things where you're in the supermarket and you grab three frozen meals and you know it's going to go in the microwave it's sort of like well okay that's one way to way to do it as as well don't yeah. get caught up in the did you pay someone to make it fresh and then freeze it did you get it from you know, the, fr the, the freezer completely on? light and easy Exactly. Get some light and easy dinners delivered. <laughs> yeah. Go to Aldi and get the, I think they've got like three or $4 frozen meals, which are awesome actually. Mm. They're, they're actually really good. It, it's guess... not about how we get them. It's about letting ourselves off the hook and, and reducing the expectations that we're holding ourselves to and knowing that sometimes taking the easy way if it means surviving is, is actually really mm. okay and necessary. Absolutely. And look at what are those unwritten ground rules what are those ridiculous standards and expectations that you are holding yourself to that's setting you up for failure if you just got rid of those expectations and were able to be present with your child were able to show up with your child you would feel so much more fulfilled and they would feel so much more safer and connected mm. and your whole um, relational dynamic the whole energy of your household will shift Absolutely. And it's really the biggest thing about this today's episode is about finding what that is. Mm. What, what is it that really brings you a lot of joy and energy? Because for, for me, and I think the same for you, cooking meals isn't something that I get a lot of joy out of. Mm -hmm. However, I know people that will pour themselves, their love into making a meal. So if that makes you feel that way, then you absolutely, you, you sort of, you do that. But you find something else that you can maybe outsource or get someone else to do, whatever that is, because creating that energy in the house is really important because kids feed off it. They don't just feed off your words, they yeah. feed off the energy. Yeah. And so when you sort of say to them, or if they come to you and say, is there, is there something wrong? what's up? You, you, you look upset or whatever. And if you say to them, no, I'm fine. They, they've already picked up something. Yeah. That's so a, that's a ruptured um, connection. Absolutely. Yeah. Attachment well, I mean, I mean, for, 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 for me as a dad, I've done it before. Um, but for now it's very important for me that anytime they, they come up to me and go, dad is something up. I don't need to let them know in all the detail, but I go, yeah, look, I'm feeling a bit flat. I'm feeling a bit frustrated. There's a lot sort of going, going on. Mm. Hey, thanks, thanks for noticing. Because if you just sort of smile and go, fake smile, no, everything's okay. I mean, in a way, I hate to say it, you're gaslighting your kids. Yeah. Oh, um, absolutely. that is absolutely gaslighting. And it's how they learn to not trust 
what they're observing. And so that then gets really confusing and why we seek validation. It's mm. like, um, you know, how many adults in relationships will, will say, what's wrong? What have I done wrong? When mm. they're seeking that because they, they haven't trusted me, they haven't been able to trust their intuition growing up in, in sensing that. And I love that point that you've made that if I will often find myself shallow breathing, which just means, you know, you sort of just breathe yeah. into the top part of your chest. Yeah. yeah. Not fast. I still breathe calmly, but it's like the breath is only going to here instead of all the way down here. Mm. And when I notice that, I'll take a nice deep breath in and I'll let it out. Mm. What I didn't know is that I also do that when I'm frustrated and angry. Ooh. It's like how I self-regulate and I'll go... Like I'll, and I'll take a really deep breath. Mm. And so my son would be anchored to that breath equals mum's angry, mum's upset. Mm, gotcha. And so sometimes he'll say, I'll take the deep breath because I've just observed that I'm chest breathing. And he'll say, mum, what's wrong? And I'll say, oh, nothing, darling. I'm okay. I just realized that I wasn't breathing. But if I had said nothing, because I really was angry and frustrated, he's already anchored to that. Now he can't trust me because mm. he's sensing, he can't trust me, but he also can't trust his senses because he's sensing that there's something up, but I have just told him there's not. And so it's, in, it's a massive lie, actually. It's really deceptive. Mm. And you put the word gaslighting to it, which is so accurate. Um, yeah. Well, just really, like they, really they, they... my breath. <laughs> Breathe, breathe. Um, because they they feel something, and then they're they're trying to identify what that that is. And as the the main caregiver, that's how they kind of learn what what it is. Yeah. So um, and so I guess it's really, and I keep on coming back to it and back to it and back to it. I want to say always for those people still playing the drinking game. Uh, <laughs> what makes you feel? good what what is authentic to yourself as a parent mm. what is it that you really really find important regardless of whatever anyone else thinks stick to that lane because yeah. then you can bring the other the other help in or realize that you know what if this part is really important to me i'm going to focus on that mm. and then if the other things have to slide so long as it's not in a completely neglectful manner, that's fine. Yeah. There's a couple of, um, I guess we're coming towards the end. There's a couple of concluding points I think I want to make. One is that observe what triggers you. Mm. Observe it with curiosity, not with judgment, because judgment is always going to lead to guilt or shame or maybe both. So observe what triggers you with curiosity and ask, write it down and ask yourself the question, what is that really bringing up for me? For instance, if, if I am, I used to get really triggered when my kids wouldn't eat the food that I had cooked them. And it was bringing up for me that I, I felt like they were rejecting me when they rejected the food that I cooked them. And so if there's something that is triggering you where you find yourself being reactive, it might be crying. See, for me, I was also really triggered by my kids crying because I grew up in an era where children should be seen and not heard and stop crying or I will give you something to cry about and then we'd cop a flogging. And so crying was not safe for me. So when my mm. kids would cry, that would tr activate this massive trauma response in me because I learned as a child that it wasn't safe for me to cry. That would fracture my connection to my caregivers. So their crying would activate my wound when it wasn't safe for me to cry when I was a child. So that's the first thing is, is observe with curiosity the triggers in your, like the things that trigger mm. you in your environment. Another thing is if you don't know how to be closer to the parent that you want to be and if this talk about expectations and standards and all that sort of stuff has got you thinking, I would urge you to sit down and close your eyes and imagine yourself as a little child. And regardless of the childhood, this isn't a cognitive exercise. It's not an analytical exercise. It's just a connection exercise, connecting to your child self. And if you close your eyes and imagine what did you need as a child? Mm. What 
could the adults in your life have said or done or given you to meet the needs that you had as a child and that will already start rewiring your brain because it's given you a frame of reference of how you can meet those needs in your children, even if it was never modeled to you. So just by doing that activity, you can model to yourself what your child needed, even if you're, you as a child didn't get it. And then you can start to sit down and go, oh my gosh, when I was crying, I just needed someone to come and sit with me. Or, oh my gosh, when that happened, I just needed someone to say it was okay that I made a mistake. So then that helps you and helps to grow and develop you to be the parent that you really want to be and that you can be really proud of being. And that's because some of this is just not knowing. We've spoken mm. a lot in a lot of our episodes about what we're modeled and that's how we learn. So we can learn by using our mind to teach us based on what we intrinsically know. This wisdom, we don't need a, a you know, rule book. We don't need a manual of exactly what words to say or how to respond in every single circumstance, mm. we can connect to that part of us and go, if my needs were met and I was feeling really seen and really heard right now, I'm really safe, what would they be saying? What would they be doing? And then that gives you an indication of how you can choose to respond to this. Mm. Because, you know, if we, our options with the should thing, that's keeping us in victim and inaction. But as soon as we wipe the should from our vocabulary and we step into self-responsibility, there is no should or shouldn't in self-responsibility. That is very empowering. It means that everything that happens in our life, we are choosing, not stuck doing. Mm. So stop shooting yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Stop shooting! <laughs> stop shooting yourself. <laughs> I always do that. <laughs> uh, I hope that's that been was, helpful. I hope that was no. Really that helpful. was very well said, Ash. Um, because the only last thing I'd sort of say is, generally outside of that, how do we how do we parent? We we basically parent on what we either wanted as a child or didn't get. Mm -hmm. So if you could just take that time to sit in there and sort of go, what is it that I what what so, you know what brings me joy? Is, in being a parent what's the most important thing to me not what is important to other people yeah. and be kind on yourself like you know you had children for a reason and so there's probably for all the things that you think you should or you always don't do there's probably a lot of stuff that you do do yeah absolutely and my, my eight-year-old would have just gone hey you said do do <laughs> that's awesome um right. and just on that I I absolutely don't want to contribute to shame and guilt. But one thing that I do have a responsibility to say is that if you have this awareness and you choose to continue to protect your triggers and your wounds at the expense of your children, you are passing the baton to them and they will have to do it for you. And so if that, and and I, I say that with absolute love in my heart mm. because I know that it's confronting and I know that it's really intense and really full on. But this is what I, I say to people. This, if we want to have a really honest, serious talk about intergenerational trauma, you need mm. to be willing to, to understand that you're part of it. And what <clears throat> you choose to not heal, you are passing to your kids as a parting gift saying, you do it. Mm. I, um, I wasn't willing to do this, so you're going to have to do it. And that's us perpetuating those cycles, perpetuating those patterns, protecting the parts of ourselves that are mirrored to us, that brings up the pain and brings up the hurt and brings up the, mm. the anger and the, you know, all those things. And so I know that's really hard to hear. Oh, and But it's completely relevant. And to yeah. take it one, one step further, it's sort of like, well, I can't do that because I've got too much time. I have to work. I have to clean. I have to do all of that. Well, you're making that. That's still a choice on your behalf. It is. Yeah. And, and it's, yes, it's got to be, a, it's about priorities, right? We yeah. talked earlier about priorities and it's going, okay, if you don't do it, then where are your kids in 20 years? If you don't, and, and you know, another thing is, Money, um, a lot of people will say, so time and money. 
And again, it comes down to priorities. It's about going, well, geez, I, I would invest in myself and my healing before investing in a house, before spending money on a car, before buying coffee every week. I would spend money on healing myself any day of the week over anything else because the return on that investment is intergenerational healing. I'm not just doing it for me. I'm mm, doing it absolutely. for my kids. I'm doing it for my grandkids. Mm. And when you sort of talk about all that and some people might sort of sit back and go, well, it got passed on to me. So, well, it's all about awareness. Like I know just like you and myself, before we started being aware, well, we would buy cars over going mm -hmm. through this understanding. It's really yeah. about the awareness piece. And if you're watching this, chances are you're already aware of it. Yeah. Um, so with the awareness does come the desire and probably what you're saying, the responsibility, responsibility. to keep on going. Yeah. So um, it's not, not easy, but absolutely worthwhile. Yeah. So, yeah. wow. Awesome episode, Ash. Look forward to next week. Um, anything else you want to wrap up with? Nah, great. That, that's Absolutely it. love the discussion. Confronting. I've got goosebumps, pretty full on stuff. But thank you so much for being with us, guys. Mm. We are, we really care about you. We really care about your development. We really care about the ripple effects that this has because if you do the work, then your work translates and impacts other people's lives as well. And if you're Absolutely. courageous enough to do it, then perhaps they don't need to. So and don't pat yourself on the back. It's and not don't, easy under work. <laughs> don't underestimate all the little small things that you're doing as well yeah. when you're working through that. Yeah. All right. I'll catch you next week. See you, Ash. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.